You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. is the greatest example we have for everything. I don't care what it is. He is the greatest example. And when he prayed in that beautiful verse in chapter 4, listen to Jesus' words, praying to God the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Jesus' one task was to do what? Glorify the Father. So our task in anything we do should be to glorify God. As Christians, it's easy to forget the magnitude of who Jesus should be in our lives. In today's message, Pastor Dave wants you to know that Jesus sacrificed himself in order to save you from your mistakes, well, sin. In this same way, you need to sacrifice your life for him by giving him your all. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2 as he continues his message, Man of Faith, Man of Action. Nehemiah has the faith to challenge the people. He has the faith. Look around you. Look around you. Look, see what's that? Look how bad things are. We don't want to be a reproach to God. We don't want our Lord to be reproached. This is his city. We want to do something here. But then he gives them a testimony. He gives them a testimony. I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good to me. That's a testimony. That's a testimony. He told them about how he prayed, about how God opened the door for him to talk to King Artaxerxes. He told them how God had provided for him, how now he was there and he knew God. That's a testimony. Testimonies encourage people. When you hear of God being faithful to someone and you hear their story of how he brought them out of darkness into their into his marvelous light, how he provided this for them and how he provided that for him, how he did this and all those things in your life, that is encouraging. Testimonies are important and each of us have one. Each of us has a testimony. You might have several. You might have a testimony where you first got saved and maybe you backslid and then you have a testimony of how God brought you back and maybe you backslid again and how God brought you back. These are all testimonies and these are important in our lives They're important in the lives of our friends because it's encouraging. When I see something happen in your life, when I see a a, a praise report, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I'm excited. When I see what's happening in some of your lives and I see your faces and I see your countenance, I get charged up. I get excited because I know God's working in your lives and that's important. And it does. So, so he told them people, this is what's happening, guys. Look at me and here I am and this is why I'm here. That must have been exciting. That really, really must have been exciting. The hand of God was good to him. God, you're so good to me. Mm. And then he identifies with the people of Jerusalem. Though his testimony, he encourages them. Nehemiah challenged them now. Hey, let's rise up and build this place back. Come on, we can do it. Nehemiah is concerned with only one thing. He's only concerned with one thing. And it says so right in verse 17. Let us build up the walls of Jerusalem, 
that there will be no more reproached. With the walls of Jerusalem down, with the gates on fire and burnt, who was being reproached? Louder. Somebody said it. God. Yes, God was being reproached. God doesn't care about these Jews. They call themselves the chosen people. Look at his city. Look at his great city. God doesn't care about these guys. Look at this. Come on. God was being reproached. Nehemiah wanted to honor God. He didn't want God to be the subject of being reproached. And he didn't want God to be the subject of bad rumors and irresponsible things. All our efforts, all our work, all our actions should be God-centered. And we should do all things to the glory of God. Everything we do should be of glory to God. That's why we exist, is it not? That's why why we're still here. Give God glory. Give God glory. Look at 19. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? Typical enemy response. Typical enemy response. Oh, come on. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, Satan has a lot of tricks, but you know he only has one or two tricks that really work. All he's doing here, what's he doing here? He's doing the same thing he did in the garden. He's questioning God's word. He's questioning God's care. He's questioning God's comfort. Come on, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this thing? It's always a trick. Why? He wants to make you doubt that you heard from God. He wants to make you doubt that you heard from God so that you stop doing what you're doing and it work doesn't get done. You need to know that God has called you and he's going to give you the glory and praise that you need. The enemy will cast doubt on everything you try to accomplish for God. He'll cast doubt on everything you try to accomplish and one of his best things to do is cast doubt on you. You? You're going to do this for who? God? <laughs> you? Look at your life. Look how bad you used to be. Look what you used to do. Look at all those kind of things you did. Look what you did yesterday, and God's going to use you? No way. No way. Spit in his eye. No way. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. God has called me. You have to have faith and believe that God called you to that ministry. But you will be constantly lambasted by that. Nehemiah is accused of one of the most dastardly things you can possibly be accused of in that time. Coming against the king. Oof. In those days, you come against the king, you lose whatever here on, from your shoulders up. Lose your head. You come against the king, you're done. You don't come against kings. This was the biggest problem with the Christians during Rome. They were told, stop professing Jesus as Lord and say Caesar is Lord. That's what they were told to do. And when they didn't do it, well, the lions need to be fed today. Come with me. That's what happens. Nehemiah was not only able to get the people to begin work, he also had the faith to stand up against the enemy. Once again, we see Nehemiah's incredible great face. I just love this guy. Look at verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. 
He's saying, you don't even have any part of us. You think you're Jews? You're not even full-blood Jewish. Who are you to tell us we can't do this and can't do that? Our God is stronger than this. And he's stronger than you. So spit in your eye. We're going to do it. I love that. Does that remind you of anybody? It reminds me of Daniel. Reminds me of Daniel when he's getting ready to be thrown in the lion's den. You know, you can throw me down there, but I know my God's going to take care of me. I love that. I love that. Why? He made three things clear. He made three things perfectly clear to the enemy. Number one, rebuilding the wall was not his work. It was God's work. Rebuilding the wall was not his work. It was God's work. Remember the Jews claimed that their capital city in Psalm 48.2 was a beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. They also said the Lord loves Jerusalem and the gates in particular in Psalm 87 verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. So they knew that in their heart. They knew that God loved that. The Jews also knew that what? They were God's chosen people. They know the Lord called him. They know their father Abraham had been called. They knew that. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem had no part in this matter. You know, today, the world is against all things God. Everything that is of God, the world is against. In fact, there's a giant battle going on right now whether we can kill babies or not. If that's not against God, I don't know what it. But the world wants to kill babies. They're coming against God's word. They're coming against his people. And do you know that anti-Semitic Attacks and problems have risen so much lately. People are coming against the Jews. People are coming against the Jew. That's why giving glory to God in all things is so important. So important. Jesus clearly declared, and we've used this verse many times in Matthew 5, verse 6. He says, let your light so shine that men might see your good works. And do what? Give you glory? No. Give glory to God in heaven. Give glory to your Father. Let your light so shine. The purpose of all ministry, folks, let me be clear with this. The purpose of all ministry, whatever it may be, not just from here, but from the worship team, the soundboard, the PowerPoint, the video, the greeters, the parking lot attendants, Kitchen workers, security, the nursery, children's ministry, coming in, cleaning the church, coming in, doing anything, whatever it is, the purpose of all ministry is to give glory to the Most High God. That is the purpose of all ministry that we do, and that is why we do it. Why we do it is to give God glory. And if you're not in it for that reason, you need to sit down until you can be in it for that reason. God wants the glory, and we want to give Him glory. I told you. Told you the story long ago. I'll repeat myself because I like repeating myself. I'm in a, in a church in Ocean City long ago, and I'm vacuuming the floor on Sunday morning so that we can have service. And there's nobody else there, and I'm there all by myself, and I start to grumble. I'm grumbling like a wild man. I'm grumbling like a wild man because I'm vacuuming the floor and nobody's there. And all of a sudden, Lord has never spoken to me audibly. Trust me, Lord has never spoken to me audibly. But all of a sudden, in my heart, I feel, Dave, who are you doing this for? Ugh. Well, I thought I was doing it for you, Lord. Then shut up. Okay. What are you do? Who are you doing it for? If you're not doing it for the Lord, don't do it. Period. Period. 
We won't hurt anybody's feelings if you're not doing it for the Lord. But if you start doing it not for the Lord and you're doing it, you're going to have all kinds of problems. You're going to have all kinds of difficulties doing this thing. And one of them is going to be grumbling. Start grumbling against each other and all this kind of stuff. You're going to grumble. No. If you're doing it for the Lord, it's going to be joy. It's going to be peace. All the fruit of the Spirit is going to be exhibiting in your life. And that's what I see here, what's happening here. They're doing it for the Lord. They're doing it because they love the Lord. Didn't Jesus pray for this? Jesus is the greatest example we have for everything. I don't care what it is. He is the greatest example. And when he prayed in that beautiful verse in chapter 4, listen to Jesus' words, praying to God the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Jesus' one task was to do what? Glorify the Father. So our task in anything we do should be to glorify God. Through Jesus Christ, we glorify him. Everybody who claims to be a Christian who has accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God has a special work for you. And, you know, I love in verse Ephesians 2, verse 10, you know the verse, Paul speaking, says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, where, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that beautiful word, poema, that word poema, that work with God's workmanship, it's like, I've heard it said, it's like poema, the poem, but I've also heard it's like there's a canvas, a blank canvas, and God is painting your life on it. This beautiful picture of God painting this life. He's called you into works, good works, that he has made and preordained before the foundations of the world. So when we get into that mindset and when we start doing those things, why wouldn't we glorify God? But our biggest challenge is to not glorify ourselves, not to think that we had something to do with it and take ownership of it. Look what I did. No, look what the Lord did. Look what the Lord did through you. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians. I did more than them all. Talking about the other apostles. I did more than them all. And he could claim that. But the next part of that statement says, but not I. But it's the grace of God that lives in me. See, Paul knew better than to take credit for anything that was accomplished. We should know better also. Nehemiah knew better. Some in Jerusalem will agree with the enemy. It's always the case. It's always the case. Some people will go by the enemy's wayside. They will agree with the enemy and they will even come against you. Even those who call themselves Christians will come against you. So Nehemiah was a man of great faith. Nehemiah was a man of great action. And as we get to chapter 13, the work begins. The work now is going to start. We spoke about Nehemiah's great faith, but he knew he could not accomplish anything without the help of God first. And the dedication of the people living in Jerusalem, he knew that he couldn't restore the the walls themselves. Because, you know, these walls are made of great big stones. And I don't know, man, it probably took three guys and a small boy to pick up some of these stones and put them in place. Some of these bad boys are huge. But, But you should see them. It's incredible. And then when you go there and you look, each nation that came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, and then they would build on top of it. But as you're standing there looking at old Jerusalem, about three feet from the ground up are the original walls where Jesus lived when he walked. They were still there. And you can but they're massive stones. 
So he, Nehemiah knew he couldn't do it by himself. He knew he needed the help of others. This church isn't about me. For some crazy reason, for God's sense of humor, he made me pastor. But it's not about me. We all are in this together, and God works all together for good. And he's using every one of us. And we're all important in God's eyes, and we all have a plan and part of this church. And it takes all of us to get things done what God wants us to do. You look at the church today. Everybody should be doing what God has called them to do. Everybody should be doing. Some people work. Some people will do more work than others. Some people work harder than others. When we go to Nehemiah 3 in verse 20, we meet a guy named Baruch, and he worked harder than anybody. He worked the hardest at all. That's what's going to happen. But the word here is zealously. He worked zealously for the Lord. It means to burn and glow. He burned and glowed for the Lord. Ecclesiastics 9.10 says, Whatever your hands find, do. Do with all your might. Whatever God has called you to do. Do your best and leave the rest to God. Do everything you can do to honor and glorify God. Never give the Lord your half effort. Never give him half of what you are. Give him all of what you are. So we look at chapter 3. Now chapter 3 is nothing but names. All the gang that helped Nehemiah build this wall. And it goes all the way through 32 chapter, 32 verses, all the names. But something came to me, and I wanted to talk about this. It's interesting. In verse 1, Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hanau. The first gate they restore is the sheep gate. The sheep gate is used to herd the sheep into Jerusalem so they can go to the temple where they will be sacrificed. Interesting. It's the only gate in the city that becomes consecrated. It's the only gate that basically becomes sanctified. It's the only gate that the priests build. It's their gate. I found that to be fascinating that they do that. So I started thinking about this. This is where we're going to end. We're not going to read all the names. We're not going to go through all the way the chapter. You should read through chapter 3, look at the names, and see how everybody had a hand in there. But let me, let me throw something out at you that's been bugging me. Let me throw something out at you. And I know some of you guys are, are better scholars than I, and that's good because I need your help on some things. Let me throw some things out for you. As I looked at this, the sheep gate, it is the gate where they herded the sheep in for the sacrifice. Now, looking at the walls of Jerusalem online during this time, now I read somewhere that during Jesus' time, the eastern gate had already been sealed up. Now we know that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come through the east gate in Zechariah 14. We know that. So what gate did Jesus enter in? And I looked all around there. Many, many people say it was the eastern gate. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But did he take a small step down, a couple feet down, and come in the sheep gate? Why wouldn't the Lamb of God come in the sheep gate? Why wouldn't the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, come in the sheep gate? I'm not being dogmatic about it. I'm not saying this is what's happened, because I don't know. And I searched the internet, I searched all through the thing, and I'm looking for all sorts of things to give me some clues. There are some people who possibly think that that could be right. I'm not saying I agree with them, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Food for thought. Why wouldn't the Lamb of God come in through the sheep gate? 
Why wouldn't he? Well, I know prophecy says he comes going to come through the eastern gate. And I looked all through there, and I couldn't find it. Maybe you can, and you can help me out. But I couldn't find it anywhere. And I, I did some exhausting searches on this gate, the sheep gate and the east gate. So we know that when he comes back in Zechariah 14, when he steps on the Mount of Olives, the eastern gate is directly across from the Mount of Olives. At the end of Revelation, he steps on Mount of Olives, it splits in two, and he comes in through the eastern gate. That's prophetic. That is prophetic. We know that. We know that. But we can't find out what gate he came in when he came into Jerusalem. It could have been the eastern gate. I'm not saying it's not. It would match up that he would come through there and they would come through again. It does match up. So if you believe that, that's okay. I don't know what I believe. I'm just saying it's cool. It's plausible to my crazy mind. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Why wouldn't he come in with the rest of the sheep? It's the first gate that they rebuilt. It's mentioned right here in verse 1 of chapter 3. It's the first gate they rebuilt. It's the only gate they consecrated. It's the only gate they sanctified. Again, remember, the sacrificial animals are coming through there. So there's a reason why they consecrate it and they sanctify it. That's a reason there. But I just start, I started thinking and I got under this exhaustive search that made me crazy. But I just thought about that. And I went back through the Gospels and I went back through here and there. The East Gate is mentioned a lot in Ezekiel's prophecy. It's mentioned there. But it's not mentioned a lot of places else. So anyhow, it's okay if you don't think that. I'm not, again, saying that we have to believe that. I'm just, I like to throw things out that blow your mind. I like to throw things out that, that make you Think about these things. So uh, maybe give you a want to investigate. Give you a want to investigate and see what the Lord would speak to your heart. Okay? I'm still like this about it. I believe it probably was the Eastern Gate. But then I read an article or read something that said the Eastern Gate could have been sealed up at that time because during one of the occupations, they sealed up that gate. Only, you know why they sealed up the gate? To prevent the Messiah from coming in. They know the Messiah is supposed to come. And if they know the Messiah is supposed to come through the Eastern Gate, they're going to seal it up, aren't they? I love that when the Bible makes me think like that because I want to study it, you know, and again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it, which means I'm saying this is what we believe because I, <laughs> I'm, you know, but I just want to throw that out there. You don't know because you look through the Bible and the Bible doesn't say you type in East Gate, you type in Sheep Gate. It's only mentioned basically in Nehemiah in a few places. So again, you know, that's why the Lord is going to sh- surprise us, isn't he? It's all surprising. So read through the rest of chapter 3, and you see a lot of names there. And, and there might be a name or two that you recognize, a lot of things, you know. And, and it's interesting that they start with the sheep gate, and they start to build. They start to build. And if you go to verse 32 of chapter 3, and between the upper room and the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repair. So they went, started verse 1, all the way around to verse 32, back to the sheep gate. I think that's interesting, that they began with the sheep gate, and they came around, and they ended at the sheep gate. Makes sense. You know, don't get into my head, because you'll go crazy. Anyhow, um, those are the kind of things I like to think about. Those are the kind of things that like to drive me crazy, that I ponder on and read. And, and you know, you, you have to be careful with what you read and what you see, so it's interesting. So again, let's not get dogmatic about it, but. Nehemiah 2 and 3, we're not going to read all the names in 3. I'm not going to butcher those poor people's names, okay? So, read for yourself. You are Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18 says, 
Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. When Nehemiah wanted to motivate and encourage people to enter into the work of God, he didn't only tell them about the great need in front of them, he also told them of the work God had already been doing. Do you see something that needs doing, that you'd like to bring others along to do the work with you? Pray and step into the work, and when God begins to move in great ways, showcase that for the world to see. You'll find that others want to jump in the work God is already doing, but it does take a person to lead the charge. If you're seeing the need today, that person is you. Thanks for joining us today on A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank. Pastor Dave is making his way through the rich book of Nehemiah, and you don't want to miss a moment of it. One way to be sure you can catch it all is to head over to assurehoperadio.com. Once there, you'll find all the ways you can stay up to date with the current series or go back and revisit another one. Once again, that website is assurehoperadio.com. Well, that's all we have for today. We'll be back with more in the book of Nehemiah next time on A Sure Hope.